0: You can't always get what you
1: want. You can't always get what you want. But if you try sometimes, well you might find. You can imagine it.
0: Welcome. I'm John L. Bell, your host. This is Visionaries. We're here every Monday at 10 a.m. Eastern American time, but we're totally global, so you'll have to figure out what time we are in your part of the world. And before I go any further, if you're hearing us, you might be on your computer at prn.fm for Progressive Radio Network. And if you are, uh, if you switch over to Facebook, and once you get on Facebook, search for Progressive radio network, you can see us on t v here in sunny Hawaii <laughs> i've got a floral backdrop in back of me so um just a just a humorous remark and we're gonna have some uh some clips video audio clips, so if you're not seeing us on imagery it doesn't matter the uh we're mostly going to see a talking head, but we're going to see a whole bunch of clips. And they're going to show some interesting stuff and talk about some interesting stuff. So let me back. Oh, one more thing. Uh, you can catch all of our back shows, including this one as of later today, on visionaries.podbean, P O D B E A N is a Nancy.com. And as soon as you get there, you see all our back shows. There's a couple dozen of them and some really interesting stuff. So uh, do explore. And you can also comment, I think. So uh, I'd be interested in your feedback. Well, uh, I work by digressing. So let's uh, do some digressing here. And I'm going to start with um, I teach... At Pratt Institute in Brooklyn, New York. So Pratt is an art architecture and design school with a strong liberal arts tradition. We also happen to have a school of information. And in a sense, we are in a century-old paradigm. So let's just think uh, teapots. And so we are um, 150 years ago, and you want a teapot. And an artisan would make a teapot, and you would buy it and use it to uh, boil your water. And so an artisan would get sheet metal, uh, bang it with a hammer, uh, form it, put welds around it, make a base, and make a teapot. Now, let's jump ahead to the um, early 1900s, 19. eighteen, nineteen twenty, 1920, nineteen twenty-five up to nineteen thirty, and we have the Bauhaus. We've all heard the term the Bauhaus, and it was the most important design school of the twentieth century. It was in Germany. Got closed down under uh early in Hitler's rule, and a lot of the key figures from the Bauhaus ended up in this country and became very influential on American architecture and design. So the founder of the Bauhaus was Walter Gropius. He became the uh, chair of architecture at Harvard and played a major role in introducing modern architecture into the United States in the 1930s. And other figures from the Bauhaus ended up in Chicago, Mies van der Rohe, for example, and um, some other key Bauhaus figures. Well, what did the Bauhaus do? Walter Gropius realized that, um, you know, <laughs> actually he didn't anticipate today, but he says, you know, we're, we're running out of royalty to buy paintings. So it used to be you you would study to be an artist, and then some prince would commission you to do a portrait of of his mistress and, uh, you know, Leonardo da Vinci doing the Mona Lisa. Well, uh, we still have that, actually, with billionaires buying art, but let's put that aside. And we uh, were—that model of art was disappearing. And at the same time, we were getting the mass production of teapots, among everything else, and they were pretty crummy. You know, they weren't well designed. So he said— Suppose instead of making, let's just make up some numbers here, instead of the artist making a painting and selling it for $1,000, the artist becomes an industrial designer and designs a teapot. Now, I don't have any images of this, but if you're online, go to Google Image and just say, uh, put in Bauhaus, and or Bauhaus designs, and you'll see incredibly beautiful stuff: tea sets, lamps. Uh, a matter of fact, you can see one of the Bauhaus lamps right inside the door in the Museum of Modern Art Design Store on Fifty Third Street, across the street from MoMA. Right when you walk in, right to your right is one of those lamps. And a label on it says, the Bauhaus designed economical modern designs, and the lamp is $995. (laughs) I guess, you know, if you're a MoMA customer, $995 is economical. To me, it's not. But anyway, um, um, you know, much of our design today comes as inspired by this Bauhaus design. Well, so... The idea of the Bauhaus curriculum was to train industrial designers as opposed to artists. And so what was the training? Well, the basics of design, color, point, line, plane, solid, texture. And you would master these fundamentals and then materials, metal, wood, glass, and you would study that about metal, which would make it a minimal to industrial processes. Uh, What can you do with sheet metal? How thick can it be uh, to be able to be formed in a press break, to be formed in a die? The things they would be using in a factory. So as a industrial design student, you would master all that stuff. And so these beautiful uh, Bauhaus designs, which, if you go, again, to Google Image and take a quick look, uh, were not meant for you to buy them. They were meant to be prototypes that would then be mass-produced in factories. And then we would then have available to us. Now, what's the ultimate uh, expression of good design that becomes available to all of us? And, of course, (laughs) it's Apple, right? Right the iPhone, and all the other Apple stuff. And so Steve Jobs, in bringing us this clean, excellent, good design, sensitive to materials, etc., that we see in our Apple computers, in our iPhones, and our iPads, etc., this is an expression of this Bauhaus philosophy. Now, what's my point of all this? My point of all this is... That was 100 years ago. (laughs) It's all, like, you know, irrelevant. (laughs) We're in a totally new world. So uh, what do we mean by that? So uh, let me ask uh, our engineer if we can go to clip one. We'll just show this for a second. And for those of you who are on uh, uh, audio, uh, let me explain it. There's a brilliant mathematician named Conway. And Conway created something called Game of Life. So Game of Life is, imagine you have a checkerboard, and all the squares are white. And then you make some of the squares black, and you make rules. The rules might say, if uh, two black squares next to each other, one of them will become white. Or if... uh, uh, a black square and a white square, whatever. it's. But you make these rules. And once you made these rules, you can watch these things hop around on your computer screen. Well, they do all kinds of things, and they look a lot like Petri dishes. You know, it's like bacteria starting to grow on your uh, computer screen, just the way if in biology you uh, had a little, uh, oh, what, four-inch diameter... Uh, dish with a little bit of a gelatin substance in it, and you put a little speck of bacteria in there, it starts to grow, or you know, like the mold growing on your cheese in the refrigerator, uh, and it grows in these patterns. Well, game of life can emulate those patterns. Well, the one we're looking at here is called a, is called a uh, 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 we can we can wrap that one up is called a glider, and what that means is. The pattern in the center is generating these little forms coming out of it. So in a way, we can say that these, um, this arrangement is manufacturing these little elements that are coming out of it. Now, there are two limitations here. One is it's two dimensions. Well, we know that's no problem. We can easily jump to three dimensions and these kinds of things. And the other is it's stuck in the computer. <laughs> I can't use those little gizmos. I can't pick them up and put them in my pocket. So what we're going to talk about today is how we can go from that to actually being able to, uh, to do things and use things. Well, um, so here we have this notion of we design a prototype and it goes to the factory and they set up an industrial process to make it now how have we jumped ahead on that everybody i'm a i'm a professor so you know raise your hand what <laughs> what's new that changes that and of course it is 3d printing so <clears throat> what's a 3d printer We're all familiar with our inkjet 2D printers. So we have a computer. The computer on the screen generates an image. We create an image. And then we click print. And we have these little bottles of ink. Uh, Whatever the red, black, what are the colors? Yellow, uh, blue, the blue and yellow, make green. So we have these four, three colors plus black, and we can print anything on our. Uh, you know, we can go to a page of Vogue magazine on our computer, and then click print, and we get a page of Vogue magazine coming out of our inkjet printer. And what it does is little nozzles put down a layer of uh, a layer of ink on the paper. Now. Let's just sort of jump ahead and imagine we have the exact same situation, except instead of ink, we have a spool of thin wire of plastic. And the inkjet head melts the plastic and puts it down in a pattern that is determined by the computer. Instead of on paper, it does it on a metal surface. And it, puts, it makes this layer a thousandth of an inch thick, but then it does it again and again. If it does it a thousand times, it's now made a solid object an inch thick. That's a 3D printer, and we can 3D print anything that we have a 3D image of in our computer, just the way we can 2D print anything that's on our computer screen. And uh, just to, you know, things we can worry about. <laughs> if you uh, go to Google Google Image and you say 3D print gun, you you can 3D print a gun. You have to still buy the bullets. But, uh, you know, the idea that guns are scarce and only the bad guys have them, uh, maybe anybody who has a 3D printer can make them. You want to be careful because... Uh, You know, most home 3D printers are kind of plastic. that We don't know if it can handle a bullet. But uh, BMW has thousands of 3D printers, and they 3D print in metal. You have tiny little beads of metal that the printer lays down. They get hit by laser, laser beams that melt them, and they form a 3D object. And there's stuff that you just can't make any other way. You know, complicated valves with internal things going on. It, there's no way you could make those by you know hammering metal parts and welding them and polishing them. But there can be 3D. You can 3D print almost any shape whatsoever. Stuff that we previously couldn't make, and these 3D printers are becoming more sophisticated all the time. However, this is still a very limited concept. How's that well, we have the intelligence, the design, the idea is in a computer <clears throat> and we can either create it if you have uh three d software, CAD software, just like if you have word processing or um two um, d graphic software, you can create any image, photoshop. Uh, et cetera, and then print that in 2D on your inkjet, well, you can similarly get 3D software. You can get expensive Adobe software. Or you can download a free uh, software program and make 3D objects. Maybe you say you make a cube, a one-inch cube, and then you hook that up to your $500 3D printer, and you know, and they get cheaper all the time. You know, these <laughs> these inkjet printers we have, uh twenty twenty five years ago those were a hundred thousand dollars. <laughs> now they're sixty bucks because I know you're gonna get suckered into buying those stupidly expensive ink cartridges um and then we try to get refilled cartridges and they screw up our printer but anyway uh the so our three d printers are getting cheaper and better all the time, just like our inkjet printers and So now we've got three things. We've got the computer, we've got the 3D printer, and we have the material that we're doing this to, to make our cube. Now let's suppose we get more extensive. There's someone we're going to look into in a minute named Neil Gershenfeld. Why is this revolutionary? Well, yeah, BMW is using them and other general motors, uh, general electric. Everybody's using them in manufacturing now for certain specialized parts. But if you make a whole sort of uh, assemblage of uh, manufacturing I shouldn't even use that word anymore— uh, 3D printers and related parts. It's called a Fab Lab for Fabrication Laboratory. Uh, <clears throat> and it might be, a Fab Lab might be 15 feet square space with a bunch of materials in it. They're popping up all over the world. Let's say, uh, let's pick up you're in the uh, Australian Outback, in the middle of absolutely nowhere, with an aboriginal tribe, and you want a bicycle, well, you could uh, build a bicycle making factory and set up a supply train, and uh, supply chain, and train people to work in a factory, and eventually you could make a bicycle. Or you could three D print one, <laughs> skip the factory, and uh, that's exactly what's happening throughout the world. Uh, just like people throughout the world can now print without a printing press, without a, you know, a printing factory. So, uh, what are the implications of this? So, uh, let's go to clip two. And we're going to introduce a character who talks about this, and this is Neil Gershenfeld. So, put Neil Gershenfeld, N-E-I-L Gershenfeld, G-E-R S-H-E-N F E L D, in our favorite place, Wikipedia. And you'll find his Wikipedia page and a description of what he's all about. And then, of course, on any Wikipedia page, you go down to the very bottom, and that's where you can click and go to his website. So, um, uh, but the other thing we're going to do today is we're going to go to our favorite source of all information, which is YouTube. So, suppose we go to YouTube and put in Neil Gershenfeld. So, let's try clip three. And this is a talk by Neil Gershenfeld. So, I'm going to let him talk first for two minutes and 18 seconds. And he talks too fast. So, my apologies. But we're going to go back and sort of unpack what he's saying. Now, if you're on Facebook, you'll be able to see uh, him talking. But you'll be able, if you're just on uh, fm on your computer, you'll hear it and you'll get all of it, so don't worry about it. So let's try uh, some Neil Gershenfeld.
1: Uh, so, fabrication, I want to talk about digital and physical. Um, there's a lot of attention, I'd say overblown hype, to connecting things to the internet. What I want to talk about is a much, much deeper connection between how digital meets physical. So. One of these doesn't fit. Can you you tell which? Um, Going further back, in the 40s, Claude Shannon digitized communication. You think you know what that means, but what it really means is he proved the first threshold theorem. He showed if I communicate not by a waveform but by a symbol, for a linear increase in the size of the symbol, there's an exponential reduction in the error rate to decode it. And that exponential scaling took about 10 years of fighting in the phone system, uh, but that's why of have the internet. Bo- Bob Lucky told me the battle was won because the analog managers died. So <laughs> it's, it's, it's a lesson in organizational change. But um, that's why we use digital communication. Uh, John von Neumann digitized computation and he did it with threshold theorems. Vannevar Bush made the last great analog computer at MIT, a room full of gears and pulleys, and it got worse with time. Uh, von Neumann showed if you compute with a symbol uh, there's an exponential reduction in error for a linear increase in the state There's very very few exponentials in engineering. That's why we're digital um, MIT made the first NC mill in 1952 as an offshoot of uh, uh, One of the first real-time computers the whirlwind and project sage in Norbert Wiener's servo mechanism lab now fast forward to today um, with overhyped Uh, additive manufacturing and 20 other descendants of computers controlling machines to make stuff. Uh, The state is continuous. All the wonderful machines, cutting, squirting, burning, bending, the state's in the computer. There's no information in the materials. Um, A child playing with Lego, the state is discrete, which means the child can make something bigger than themselves. Metrology is local. Um, uh, you can detect and correct errors. When you 3D print errors accumulate, uh, the tower is more accurate than the child. Um, you can join dissimilar materials, and when you're done, you don't put Lego in the trash, you disassemble it, you reuse it. Those are exactly the properties Shannon and von Neumann taught us, They don't apply to any of the advanced manufacturing today because the information is still in the computer. So what I want to talk about is digitizing not the design in the computer but the information within the materials. My prior art, the prior art I really like, is 4 billion years ago and that's when the ribosome evolved. The ribosome builds me and you as molecular machinery coding construction with exactly the properties I showed on the last slide. Let's go a bit
0: further to to 218.
1: A year ago, I was so irritated by government agencies asking me about their 3D printing projects. I ran a program with the White House OSTP and all the agencies to talk about digitizing that information in the computer that dates back to the 50s. Okay,
0: Uh, so that's um, Neil Gershenfeld. So let's, uh, with apologies for... his uh, terminology. So my fantasy is that he should redo this lecture and make it about five times as long and explain what he's talking about. So what he's talking about is, uh, first, the beginnings of computing. And so, of course, we begin with, um, we begin with uh, Shannon and Turing, so we have the Turing machine and then we have Johnny von Neumann uh, whose uh, computer architecture we use to this day so your laptop computer is a Neumann uh, has a Neumann, von Neumann architecture uh, input, output, stack uh, CPU, memory but uh, then he goes on and he talks about CAD CAM. So that's computer-aided design hyphen computer-aided manufacturing. And the the big example of that is if you go uh, to Google Image and say automobile factory, uh, you'll see all these robots, you know, doing welding and putting the glass uh, into the windshield, et cetera, et cetera. So that's... uh, those robots are computer-aided manufacturing and they're controlled by uh they they do processes that were created in the computer in computerized design. So uh and then uh here's what we're gonna talk about today. Now this is getting a little bit in the weeds, right? I am mean, with this little bit of inside baseball. But you know, let's get beyond the um <laughs> you know, we go to uh MSNBC uh, Fox News, um, uh, etc., and CNN, and we get these thirty-second or fifteen-second sound bites, like uh, Trump says he's going to bring manufacturing back to America. Those jobs are gone; they don't exist anymore. They, what manufacturing? It's done by robots. <laughs> So, now what does that mean? How is that done? Let's try to understand that a little bit because we're in the middle of a revolution that is only just in its infancy. So, let's say, uh, again, we've got the... Uh, we're doing 2D printing on our on our inkjet. So, we've got the information's in the computer. It's controlling the uh, inkjet printer and the... Ink and the paper are joining together to make the image. So that's what Gershenfeld meant by the information is in the computer. And then he says the information is in the material. Uh, what is that going to mean? Uh, how is that going to change everything? And so let's, uh, let's uh, jump ahead and go back to this talk. And let's start at 4 minutes and 26 seconds and go to 5.37. So this will be just about a minute and 11 seconds. So let's try some more.
1: This is at different times, and there's a very bad party game where you pass things through each of the steps. And so we found we had to implement all of them for ourselves, so in a straight path you can go direct from the data structure out to the machine. And James and Nadia are here and can tell you more about all of that. The step after that that's much more exciting, even still and interesting, now is think about the Lego bricks, but now Lego bricks... In a range of scale so in the smallest scale rather than just DNA or origami what we're doing is iterative assembly of nanostructures and proteins so that you can grow nanostructures uh, one size bigger this is micro Lego made out of electronic materials let's see yeah. so what you're looking at now is 3d assembly of uh, uh, circuitry of electronics and uh, My student, Will Langford, is reproducing the whole history of integrated electronics with six part types, n-type, p-type, semiconducting, insulated, resistive. And with just those six part types, by where you put them in 3D, you can make traces, vias, inductors, capacitors, resistors, transistors, and assemble integrated electronics in a reversible tabletop process. Bigger scale steel, uh, my student, Kenny Chung, now at NASA last year,
0: Okay, so, what did we get there? (laughs) He talked about something we all know. (laughs) Actually, I'm too old. I had an erector set when I was a kid. But today we have, our kids have Lego blocks. So, we can make anything out of Lego blocks, sort of. You know, you can make Batman (laughs) in the Lego Batman movie. Uh, You can make a castle. And... You assemble these blocks. Now, what if the blocks get smaller and you assemble them? And so he's now describing uh, iterative assembly of microstructures. What does that mean? It means very small Lego blocks that we can put together to make just about anything. And he describes how one of his students has made the uh, fundamental components of electronics Uh, just a a little bit more. Uh, Our superhero of computers is Claude Shannon. And in 1948, he wrote a paper in which he created information theory. But uh, that was only his uh, second act. His first act was his master's thesis. He never got a Ph.D., But for his master's thesis, he said, you know, there's something called Boolean logic after George Boole, a mathematician. And Boole said, what if we make some rules? If we say, if A is true and B is true, then you get C. If A is true and B is not true, then you get D. If A and B are both not true, then you get E. So these are rules of logic, and they're a way of you know what people had always been doing. Um, what's the famous one? You know, from the ancient Greeks. Um, what is it? Uh, all men are mortal. Socrates is a man. Therefore, Socrates is more is mortal. <laughs> We needed logic to figure out that Socrates is mortal. But that's an example of uh, what's called Aristotelian logic. So Boole takes Aristotelian logic and generalizes a set of rules. Well, what Shannon did for his master's thesis, he says, You know what? I could make circuit breakers do that. If If circuit A and B are on, we'll get condition C. If circuit A is on and B is off, we'll get condition D. That's called the transistors in a computer chip. <laughs> he invented, you know, how computers work for his master's thesis. It's called, it's, it's called the most important master's thesis of all time. So what, what um, Gershenfeld just described is those switches as micro-components that can then be assembled to make all the parts of a computer. Now, uh, so we're starting to get materials and operational systems that we can start putting together. And so now, just the way a kid can either out of their own imagination or following the directions, assemble the Lego blocks. We can set and make the castle or Batman. Uh, we can assemble these components. We'll talk more in a moment about what they are to make eventually just about anything. Electronics, cell phones, uh, You know, we can also, (laughs) we can already 3D print. Uh, It's real popular with toys. You know, if your kid is making little toy figures, little three-inch tall figures in their dollhouse or their little soldiers, and they're missing, uh, you know, one of the cowboys (laughs) uh, figures, they can go online and look for one. They can go to the toy store and buy one. They can 3D print one. Well, how do they design a little cowboy to 3D print? And the answer is, they download the program. There's this whole, you know, libraries of uh, of uh, programs that you can download to 3D print just about anything, including certain things that we're not supposed to, <laughs> like a gun. <laughs> now, let me, before we go ahead, let me just jump ahead. Um so, uh you're a worried parent and your kid has a fever. Um okay. So you take their temperature. Uh you uh should you take them to the emergency room? Uh maybe you telephone a uh medical person who says uh, I'll phone it's you know I don't think it's serious see how it is in the morning but I'll phone a prescription in or I'll computerize a prescription right over to the drugstore and you can pick it up in 15 minutes okay that's pretty advanced uh, but where's the part where you got to get in the leave your kid get in the car and go to the drugstore suppose uh, you p- get a tricorder. Who doesn't know what a tricorder is? <laughs> right? Uh, that's what uh, uh, Bones uses on Star Trek to diagnose. So you take your home tricorder, you diagnose your kid, it says you need this drug, you 3D print the drug on your home drug printer. <laughs> well, you know, it's just a matter of time before we have that. So let's see where this is uh, where this is going. And Gershenfeld refers to it as a uh, third digital revolution. So let's go to 537 and then go to 706 and listen to two more minutes of this talk.
1: A bigger scale still. Uh, my student, Kenny Chung, now at NASA last year, um, showed... Reversibly linking carbon fiber loops by an order of magnitude makes the highest modulus ultralight material. And so what he's doing is he's now at NASA Ames uh, designing shape-changing airplanes made by reversibly linking loops of carbon fiber where then the whole uh, structure itself is deformable. And then on bigger length scales still, uh, my student Matt Carney this afternoon will be showing work on this sort of robot. Today when you make an A350 or a 787, there's an autoclave the size of the airframe to wind fibers the size of the airframe. What we showed is reversibly linking little carbon fiber loops is actually lighter and stronger. And then instead of having one big part, you can mass produce lots of little parts. And then this robot, it's a funny sort of robot. It's sort of like a ribosome, the protein that makes proteins, in that all it can do is go one step forward or backwards and add or remove one part. But by iterating them, we're now working with air Airbus to make airplane printers that eliminates the whole supply chain, the whole 20 billion dollar supply chain that makes final assembly make the whole airplane. It's not printing an airplane but assembling an airplane. And in fact, on the biggest scale, um, uh, this is some modeling we're doing for a project with Homeland Security on geoprinting, on making landscape. And what that's about is um, Superstorm Sandy or Katrina can do $20 billion damage, and our national technical means is bags of wet sand. Um, and so we're looking at reversibly making landscape on demand for a disaster response. And so across this range, it's very hard to print electronics. We're, we're cheating. We're not printing. We're assembling electronics out of high-performance materials. It's very hard to print carbon fiber little parts. Again, we're cheating. We're linking loops of carbon fiber to assemble it. It's very, very hard to print mountains.
0: Okay, so what do we have now? um what he's describing is let's take um let's take the airplane so the first uh <laughs> plastic airplane <laughs> is the boeing seven eighty seven actually is the first uh, uh major Passenger plane. There are business planes doing this uh, earlier. But what they do is you've got to make a metal form the size of the airplane, (laughs) and then you take, you wind carbon fiber. So you have these fibers of carbon. Uh, They're like, uh, oh, imagine uh, the hairs in a horse tail. Uh, And you have thousands of these fibers. And they're super, super strong, much, much stronger than steel and much lighter. And you um, extrude You know, like when you're, uh, when you're moving and you have to tape up a whole bunch of boxes, you have a tape dispenser, you put the roll of tape in the handle, and you pull it over the box, and the tape comes out and sticks to the box. So it's exactly like that. You have a big version of that. And what it does is it winds around, the little robot arm winds it around the form for the airplane. It's extruding a whole series of these fibers with a lot of uh, epoxy goop. And after it's uh, done this for a while, you put it in a big oven and you uh, bake it and it hardens the epoxy. So now you've made a plastic airplane body and then you epoxy glue the wings on and then we fly in that thing (laughs) but anyway uh uh, that's how they're doing them now so it's much lighter and stronger than aluminum so the we know forever starting from the uh 1930s we're making airplanes out of aircraft grade aluminum but now we can make them out of uh carbon fiber composites. Composite means it's the carbon fiber or other fibers, might be glass fibers, and the uh, epoxy goop, which is the matrix, which then hardens. Well, uh, Gershenfeld here is suggesting something totally different. and You heard the term reversible linking little fiber loops. So what they're doing is they have these little robot arms that are able to grab uh, little carbon fiber looped components and assemble them together just the way we stick together our Lego blocks when we're kids. And these things are then lighter and stronger than building in other ways. And you eliminate two things. Number one... You eliminate the making a form the size of the airplane so that this little device that might be a 10-foot cube can make an airplane the size of a giant airplane. In other words, it makes something bigger than itself. And number two, and this is where it gets a little interesting, you heard the term you eliminate the multibillion-dollar supply chain. Now, you might have heard that Elon Musk is making rockets for 10% of the cost, 90% cheaper than NASA makes them. How do he do that? (laughs) Well, he doesn't buy any components from anybody else. All the stuff that they can't make, forming metal, they just 3D print it. And, uh, you know, the... the, um, Defense contractors who used to be making the rockets for NASA are not happy about it. <laughs> Raytheon and uh, Boeing that uh, make the rockets that are that cost ten times what Elon Musk's rockets cost. So he's eliminated. He's got a big factory, and that's it. The only thing that comes in is the powdered metal <laughs> that they then three D print into all the parts. They don't need all these suppliers and. All these other factories making the components. They make the components. Well, when Boeing made the 787, the Dreamliner, uh, it had uh, all these component makers... One company made the wings, another company made other parts. They were all over the world. Uh, the parts were not made right. The thing got delayed two years. They finally got everything on track. But they are dependent on all these manufacturers all over the world making things, which got shipped to Seattle, Washington, where they got glued together <laughs> to make the final airplane. Well, what happens when... You don't have to do anything. You just 3D print the whole airplane. (laughs) And you eliminate all those other activities. So this is suggesting a totally different world. So I mentioned that I teach at an art architecture and design school, which is still sort of models its education on the Bauhaus, training the kids to... Uh, design prototypes that can then be mass produced but we're, that's not how that they're, they're, they're making stuff anymore I mean they're still doing some of it but the world is quickly changing over into what we're talking about here so let's uh, try uh, one more let's go from 7.34 to uh, 8.06 so that's just about 30 seconds
1: We're assembling electronics out of high-performance materials. It's very hard to print carbon fiber little parts. Again, we're cheating. We're linking loops of carbon fiber to assemble it. It's very, very hard to print mountains. Again, we're kind of cheating. And so from molecules up to mountains, the insight is we're finding by discreetly assembling reversibly joined materials, you can get into these wild regimes you can't get to with any other kind of fabrication process because the information is in the materials not in the computer. Then finally, um, this is the mathematics of folding. Uh.
0: So, okay. So let's um, think a bit about what we have here. (coughs) Uh, There are two steps to all this, and step one I think we can all understand. And that is, there is a thing, a little toy soldier, uh, a little dining room table for a dollhouse that somebody has designed and if your child is, uh, you know, wants to be proactive and more than a consumer, uh, your child will learn how to do, do the designs themselves. I hope you're uh, educating your kids on how to do that. <laughs> or they're educating us, as the case may be. And uh or they download the design for the dining room table or the toy soldier, <clears throat> and there are bazillions of these designs out there available for downloading uh, into their computer, and then they um, uh, 3D print it. Well, we all can understand that because uh, we can go to uh, a page on uh, Wikipedia and then. There it is, downloaded into our computer, click print, and that Wikipedia page is now coming out of our 2D printer. So it's exactly the same thing, just uh, making more layers of the ink, Uh, (laughs) uh, but this time liquid plastic until it builds up uh, a three-dimensional object as opposed to just a two-dimensional page. Okay, great. So we understand that. But Gershenfeld is doing much more here. He's doing two things. Number one... He's suggesting that the information is not just downloaded into the computer. Um, You can skip the computer and do it straight from the printer. But not only that, skip the printer and the material assembles itself. So uh, let's go from um, 832 to 912. Or is that the one we just did? OK, so let's go from 8.32 to
1: 9.12. And So finally, this is developing structures where there is no machine, where the material itself is shape-changing. And what that all adds up to is this picture. There are mainframe computers, then mini computers, then hobbyist computers, then PCs. We're now recreating that. MIT's 1952 mill is like the, the mainframe of fabrication The fab labs I'll talk about are like the mini computers, the machines that make machines I showed and James and Nadia are showing are like the hobbyist machines. And then the end result is the Star Trek replicator. The Star Trek replicator isn't a 3D printer, that's a piece of plastic or maybe metal. The Star Trek replicator is coding the construction of functional materials from micro scales on up, and that's where the research is heading. There's two lessons from this parallel. The first lesson is the internet wasn't invented after the iPhone. The Internet.
0: Okay, so uh, there are two steps here. One is, the information is in the material. Uh, let's get real sophisticated about our manufacturing. Suppose you wanted to make an oak tree. Well, uh, you could make uh, an Ertzat oak tree by... Uh, Stick a telephone pole in the ground and nail some uh, sticks to it and glue some leaves on it. Or maybe you could get a whole bunch of oak tree cells and have a 3D printer assemble them layer by layer. You know, we can 3D print human organs now. But how's the other way you would make an oak tree? Anybody raise your hands? Anybody? How would you make an oak tree? You take an acorn, stick it in the ground, let the oak tree make itself. All the information to make the oak tree is there in the oak tree. And it can self-assemble itself. has to pull water and air out of its environment, but uh, it can self-assemble. Why aren't we making our iPhones that way? That's what Gershenfeld's doing. Now, the final part of this is How does that change everything? Our whole world has been built upon you need stuff. You need a chair. You need a table. You need a book. What do you do? You go to school. (laughs) You get educated. You get a skill. At 9 o'clock every morning you go to work. You work until 5 o'clock. They pay you money. You take the money. You go to the store. Uh, Somebody has manufactured the table, the chair, the book. You buy it. You take it home. You use it. And then you throw it away. (laughs) That's the entire structure of our world. That's over. That's gone. There's a totally new... Well, what is the new? So let's uh, combine... 10 and 11, uh, I'm sorry, 9 and 10 here, and let's go from 943 to 1238 and talk about how Barcelona, Spain is totally changing itself with fab labs so that it can make anything with these little labs instead of with manufacturing.
1: Science Foundation at one point came to me and said, you got a lot of taxpayer money, show social impact. And they did it because Congress told them to do it. They didn't know how to do it, I didn't know how to do it. But we thought the machines were fun. So we set up a community version of the most used machines on campus, about 100K investment, and then they've been doubling about every year and a half for about 10 years. So there's hundreds of these labs around the world, as far north as you can go in Norway or as far south in Africa. Um, The one I'm showing you there is Investmentair. If you've seen the pictures of a volcanic island in Iceland where the city is being destroyed by the volcano, that's where this is. (laughs) The the volcano came through, they cleaned up. And it's a wonderful fab lab, 100K investment, um, uh, 3D design, additive fabrication, much more used as precision subtractive fabrication, small scale up to large format, and then embedded programming, all of that. So this is enough technology not just to make technology, but to make machines. So boats, bicycles, kayaks, houses, internet terminals, healthcare, consumer electronics, production tooling, all of that are projects in Fab Labs. Once you kind of have this scale of technology, you can create almost anything, including all of that. Jump in. Um, we started spreading those, and what, the biggest surprise for me...
0: So uh, I just want to jump in. He's using the term Fab Lab. So let's explain what that is, and then we'll finish up. So, again, imagine you have a room that's, oh, twenty 20 feet square. And in it, you've got, it's a shop. You know, imagine the wood shop from school or if you have one in your basement and you have saws and drills, et cetera. Except this is all this modern stuff. So you have 3D printers, you have laser cutters, you have milling machines. Uh With this stuff, you can make anything if you're in the middle of Africa, you go to the dump and you get a bunch of thrown away plastic and you can mill it uh which is you grind it down into the parts you can melt it and three d print it so a fab lab is a thing that can make anything you need a bicycle you can make a bicycle. you have to do more than three d print you got rubber tires you got a metal frame you've got uh uh so a fab lab is like a 3D printer plus a bunch of other stuff so that you can make anything and now imagine that you've got 50 of them around the city and someone wants to do something they can go to the remember before your home printer could xerox now you're you know your 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 home printer you you it usually you can just open the top, and you can Xerox something. But before that, you went to a copy shop, and they had a whole bunch of big uh, Xerox machines, uh, copy machines, and you could copy. You needed a booklet. You needed a report. You needed 50 copies of a report. You can't do that at home, so you go to a copy shop. Not too many copy shops around. Uh, Kinko's is sort of gone, uh, because you can do most of that at home, you're got to email the report anyway. But a fab lab is like a three-dimensional version of a copy shop. They're around the city, and you go there. You need a bicycle. Uh, you need a report. You go to Kinkos. You need a bicycle. You go to the. Uh, you go to the uh, fab lab. So let's uh, now see how he's going to spread these around.
1: In turn has been the impact. Um, uh, in Barcelona, fabulous design sense, Things if you look at the Sagrada Familia, and 50% youth unemployment. It's an amazing number. A whole generation doesn't get to leave home and get a job. Um, my friend Vicente Gayart, who started the first FabLab in Barcelona, is now the city architect. He's the planner. Um, His buddy, Tony, who co-started the Fab Lab, is the deputy mayor, and they got their buddy to be the mayor. So rather than complaining, they just took over the city. And what they're doing is really interesting. They're filling the city with fab labs as urban planning, and the reason is 50% unemployment, but they buy products made far away and trash goes to landfill. So they want the city to be globally connected for knowledge, but self-sufficient locally so the city can produce what it consumes. If you think about a job in a factory, you uh, go somewhere remote from where you live to do something you don't want to do, making something designed by somebody you don't know for somebody you'll never see, to get money to get something that you want. That, that's kind of the, the deal we make in our economy. If anybody can make anything, this connection between, you know, consumption becomes creation you can produce rather than consume things made far away. And so Barcelona's turned into this grand experiment for fabrication and they're also doing it for energy and for food to be globally connected for knowledge um, but self-sufficient locally to produce what you consume. Uh,
0: Okay, great. So let's make a little analogy and then we'll wrap up. And I teach at a university and i'm a big information consumer. Uh, <laughs> i pay $500 a month for a mini storage for my books still after getting rid of thousands of them. uh but i don't go to the library anymore. and um hardly go to bookstores anymore because you can get all this information online, download it, put it in your computer manipulate it, print it email it, I see an article in the New York Times uh, I email it to somebody uh, we're in information changed from you had to, they had to print the magazine, you had to go to the to the newsstand, buy the magazine, take it home, make a Xerox copy, mail it to your friend all that's totally now imagine we do the exact same thing with stuff how does that change everything? Factories will start disappearing the way Barnes and Nobles are disappearing. Uh, how does the world change? What do things become like? Um, that's what Neil Gershenfeld is outlining the possibility of. What it's going to mean, how it changes our lives, how we want that world to unfold. That's for you to think about. That's what we've got to start thinking about. So, um, I'm John LaBelle. This is um, Visionaries. You hear us every every Monday on prn.fm, and all of our back shows are on visionaries.podbean.com. And today we asked you to think about what happens when everything about our entire world, again, what do we do with our lives? We go to school to, yes, become a complete person, but also to gain a skill, to go to a job, to make a living, to get money to go to the store, to buy stuff, to take home and use, and then throw away. What happens when you just go down to the neighborhood Fab Lab, click print, and make whatever you need? And it's all free. And if you're, you know, more ambitious, you have your own Fab Lab in your own basement. Or you go over to your neighbor and say, you know, can I use your bandsaw? Can I use your Fab Lab? I need to make some parts for my—I need to make a bicycle. (laughs) Because it's my kids now, you know, crashed their bicycle and they need a new bike. Uh, What does this world look like? Uh, How does everything change? So uh, see you again next week. This is John LaBelle, Visionaries. Thank you.